With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Hey everyone, welcome to the OFD Bookcast. We are back at it, or I am back at it, uh, is the better way to say it. I am your host and reader, uh, Joshua Voles, site manager, emperor, supreme warlord, and defender of the faith over at onefootdown.com on the SB Nation Network. And again, hey, I am very sorry for those that... uh, uh, I've been following along with the with this book cast here. It, it's been a long delay. I, I don't even know how long the, the delay has been, but uh, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. Quarantine is a busy time for having nothing to do. Uh, I have felt uh, overwhelmed at times with the amount of uh, stuff to get done. I don't know. Maybe it's the schooling the kids. It's the constant cooking. It's the uh, 5,000 around the house and backyard projects. I don't know, but I have just been absolutely uh, swamped and I I have put this off long enough. Uh, I set aside some special time uh, here on a Saturday night uh, to to knock this out. So uh, to pick up where we left off at, uh, we had just got done talking to, I think it was a single chapter uh, bookcast all about Frank Leahy and, you know, Notre Dame's, you say glory days. I mean, it was glory upon glory uh, with uh, the Leahy era. So we're going to pick up with, from there, going into Chapter 10, uh, The Revival. And again, this is from Notre Dame's Greatest Coaches by Stephen Singular and Mr. Notre Dame, Moose Krause. Oh, and before we... Uh, before I go on any further, I gotta tell you there was there was some massive pride uh, pumping out of my chest the other day. My youngest son Dylan, uh, in preschool, had got a a thing in the mail from his teachers, and it was uh, there was a like a little progress report in there um, for I don't know what the hell. But, uh, there's a little progress report in there, uh, like a little present for him, like a little eraser. Uh, it also had a, a special uh, note, a special letter in there. And they had, they had, in the letter, it said, Dylan, Mr. Notre Dame. And his teachers, are they're, they're, I think one's a Buckeye fan, the other one's a Michigan fan. Yeah, welcome to the 419. All right, welcome to Northwest Ohio. Uh, but so... 
they have no idea who Moose Krause is. Uh, but calling him Mr. Notre Dame, I was, and I'm reading this, I'm just like, I've, I've done it. I, I, this is this is what dad life uh, hashtag dad life is all about. I was I was so pumped. Uh, my wife kind of looked to be kind of funny, but I just felt it was it was super cool. So I wanted to share that uh, obviously because of what the material that we're going through uh, and my my uh, well known by now at least it should be uh, affinity towards Moose Krause uh, and uh, also known as Mister Notre Dame. So well, let's get rolling. So in 1949, uh, you know, the Leahy era was was starting to go down a little bit. I, I, there are some obvious disagreements we'll we'll have about national championships and all that. But um, Moose, you know, you know, just stopped coaching football. You know, I, Leahy was the was the athletic director at the time, and he basically offered it to Moose to take over. And back in those days, you know, coaches, we've gone over this. You know, Moose was was banging in practice day in and day out. I mean, this wasn't just, uh, you know, this wasn't just standing on the sidelines with a whistle uh, and yelling or, or <laughs> right, nonsense. I mean, we're talking, Ed, you know, he was in there hitting it uh, with all these players. And again, remember, he wasn't allowed to wear pads. Frank didn't let his coaches wear pads. Uh, to, you know, they wanted to show you know how tough they were. So physically, he's he's probably worn out. I mean, he's a big guy, uh, big nasty player, you know. But he's probably pretty you know worn out by at this moment. On top of that, you know, Moose knew that as an athletic director, your duties are more centric to the campus. You know, you're on campus more. You're not out recruiting. You're not out on the road all the time, uh, you, know, you know, for games. You got to remember, Moose was the head basketball coach at the time. Moose had, you know, a record of 98 and 48 uh, as his his head coaching record. He beat Rupp. Yeah, I beat Kentucky. There's a, there's a great little story in here about uh, uh, about the band sitting right behind, uh, you know, Kentucky uh, when when they beat them, just blasting. Uh, I love the pettiness. Absolutely adore it. Um, but yeah, so I mean, Moose was a busy guy on campus. Uh, no, he took the AD job. He, his family was growing, uh, you know, and just be able to have more of a normal life uh, for his wife and for his children, uh, you know, was it was at that point. And it, it was, obviously, I think it was a pretty smart move uh, for Moose, and it was a great move for uh, for Notre Dame. Um, so I just I'll read uh, a little excerpt here from uh, about this. While he was athletic director, many new sports at Notre Dame achieved varsity status. Lacrosse, soccer, hockey, swimming, field hockey, and volleyball, plus five women's sports, including basketball, field hockey, fencing, tennis, and volleyball. His reputation as an AD is best summed up by the remark of an Irish alum from the 60s. If St. Peter ever needs a break from his work at the pearly gates, the man to spell him is Moose Krause. The only thing harder than figuring out who gets into heaven is trying to disperse the money at the Notre Dame Athletic Department without making everyone mad. That was his job for three decades. In his early days as AD, Moose helped the football program in ways that weren't completely obvious. If there were schools that had grown tired of playing the Irish because Leahy had defeated them so often and so badly, there were also schools that Moose could now call up and schedule or reschedule because he had a good personal relationship with their athletic directors. People enjoyed doing him favors. As one sports writer put it back then, Moose will talk him into playing the Irish, and Frank will beat him up. I mean, it was, you know, it's a different time back then. I mean, and obviously, too, that spells it out where, you know, Notre Dame was creme de la creme. I mean, like, for real. This wasn't just like a over a century blue blood type type thing. This was like, this is the King, this is King dog on the mountain um, calling up to play, you know, and a lot of teams are like, God, do we, do we really want to schedule us a, a loss like this? And, you know, so it, it was important to, to find the schedule that, that fits. And, you know, you, you, you needed a sweet talker. It, it was 
wasn't about like the numbers like it is today with, you know, television numbers and, and ratings and, you know, gate and all that shit. I mean, gate, yes, still back then, but a lot of it was just, you know, can, can you get them just, can you get them to come? Can you get them to let you go there? I mean, that's what a lot of it boiled down to. Um, and Moose was a big, I mean, a big presence. Uh, people, I love that that line about you know people people liked doing him favors. Uh, you know you you wanted to be you wanted to make him happy. Uh, it, it probably isn't the greatest uh, uh, you know comparison, but you know kind of like kind of like a mob boss, right? You you want to you want to be able to do something to to make them happy. You know, like uh, like like in the like in the Godfather movie when uh, when the the, the vendor gives uh, gives Vito uh, you know some oranges and he wants to pay him. He's like, no, 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 no. You want to be able to do people in power. You want to be able to do these favors of people in power. Uh, you know, you, you never know when your time comes around. You know, where, where you're going to need a favor for them or, or even just the slightest little bit uh, from them. And, and it felt so it felt good. Uh, but <laughs> you know, he was he was a massive figure at Notre Dame. Then, even I mean, th- this is you know you talk about all these decades of of lore and and all that build up. This shows you know just how well respected he was back then. You know a lot of people, a lot of people nowadays across the country, you say the name Moose Krause, Mister. You know they really probably don't know what we're talking about. Uh, I've, you know unless you're a Notre Dame fan, of course, or or an old timer. And back then, I think it was, it was a lot more known about who he was and what he did. Um, and, and here, so here's a, here's a great part about, you know, talks about him, uh, his son talks about, you know, his, you know, his office. And so when the kids walked in and met dad, and, and this is his son, Phil. So when the kids walked in and met dad, their eyes would get wide and their mouths would all open. They would gawk when he told them about all the football heroes and coaches he'd known. Here was one of Rockney's old players asking an 18-year-old to become part of the history of the school. And he might have Johnny Lujak or Paul Horning standing there with him. The kids would say, my God, look at him. It was all part of the recruiting process at Notre Dame, and it worked. The school wasn't the easiest sell because of the academic requirements, but this helped a lot. Dad was always proud of the football record, but his biggest achievement as athletic director was overseeing a program in which 98 to 99% of the players graduated and did it without violating the rules. He was always totally against paying college players anything, cars or clothes or whatever. In his mind, you were lucky enough to be getting a college education at Notre Dame, and that was enough. So a couple things to unpack there. Uh, Number one, like, yeah, that's huge. We don't have that right now. I mean, uh, as far as like recruiting wise, the uh, Jack Swarbrick uh, doesn't have that sway of saying you know he played for uh, Era, okay, um, and, and then he then he has like Tim Brown and, and Rocket next to him. That's not going on right now at Notre Dame. But that's in essence that's what was happening then, and you can see. Especially the way Notre Dame had, was already like there, you could see how that had worked recruiting, how, how big of a pull that was for these kids, um, and so you know it was a ma- major advantage for Notre Dame, uh, you know, in that sense. Uh, another thing to, <laughs> to get there is you kind of wonder what Moose would think about today, you know, especially with this with the um, name and image name image likeness uh, thing going on here. Uh, you know, what he would think about that. Now, I, I think probably be against it. I, I don't know. Uh, but it, it would seem just from that statement there that, uh, you know, the, the education that they're getting on scholarship should be enough of a payment for, for a player. Personally, I am all for the NILs and, and hope, you know, that these guys are able to, to, to get that. It's a different era. It's a different game. It's a different everything, um, but uh, you know. But it it, it it reaches back to that that old school mentality. So, you know, moving right along here, you know, Leahy retired, uh, and it was kind of. I mean, what do you do? How how do you replace a giant? I mean, we 
you know, Notre Dame did that. The last time they replaced a giant, uh, they put Bob Davey out there uh, after Lou Holtz. So it's a, it's a it's a tough thing, right? So what Moose does is he hires Terry Brennan, who was 25 years old at the time. Um, he had he was coaching at Mount Carmel High School. Uh, so here's a you know a high school football coach, although was an alum um, and former player, uh, but hired a high school football coach in essence. Uh, so in you know in his first two years, Brennan was 17 and three. Uh, which isn't bad, but even at Notre Dame, three losses in in two years, it's a big deal. I mean, that's, you're not talking, that's not national championship type stuff. But he was 15 and 15 the next three years and departed as head coach four days before Christmas of 58. His last season, the student body hung him in effigy on three separate occasions. Not once, not twice, but three freaking times you're hung in effigy. Now, I don't think anybody would get away with hanging their coach in effigy anymore. That's just like, that's some wrong ass shit. But back then it was different, different era. Uh, but I, it just goes to show you what was expected even back then, you know, of Notre Dame and the Notre Dame football head coach. And you know, it, it wasn't going to get any easier from there. You know, Notre Dame goes on to, to hire Joe Kukrick, um, who, um, you know, what, 17 and 23? He's the only losing. I mean, did a worse job than Tyrone Willingham. He went 17 and 23. He, he's the only losing football coach in the history of the school. Even Jerry Faust had a winning record. Um, so, and they're, they're looking. I mean, we go from Brennan to Kukrich. Uh, they had, DeVore was a filled in for a season, uh, just kind of like as an interim role, kind of like, um, uh oh, oh like a like a fickle like a Luke fickle how he how he was an interim coach for the entire year for Ohio State um you know before uh, before it was Meyer what was it right at right after Trestle and right before Meyer um yeah and that didn't go all that great <laughs> so but so moving past DeVore you're you're trying to find a guy. You're, you know, you have your intern, but you're trying to find a guy. So in 1963, Moose found his guy. Uh, it says in, in 63, for the fourth straight year, Notre Dame was beaten by a school that, that uh, should never be competitive with them in the earlier days, and that was Northwestern. Uh, and the coach there, his name was Era Parsegian, and he had already expressed interest in coming to South Bend. He'd watched the demise of Kukrick and the last lack of success by DeVore and then contacted Notre Dame administration about being hired as the next coach, although he felt that as a non-Catholic and a non-alumnus, his chances were slim. Moose wanted him, and after using his gifts of persuasion on the university officials, he got his way. The priests here are wonderful people, Moose has said on more than one occasion, but they don't know much about football. Now, yeah, I... You know, it was said. It said that you know, LBJ, when he when he wanted something, man, he would lean on someone. I mean, he would get his way. I I don't think Moose was as uh, verbally as an. I, I I just can't see Moose as being a big a dick as LBJ. Let's put it that way. Um, but I think in in the same sense, though, when you're leaning on somebody to get what you want. Uh, there's some kind of there. There is a bit of like an intimidation kind of a thing, and not to say that Moose would ever, you know, not like say he's going to swing, <laughs> you know, swing a father, but you know, there's kind of like you know, this is what this big man wants. Feed the big man. Uh, so he pushed, he pushed, he pushed. So they agree, and uh, so Eric gets to uh, gets the Notre Dame. And it was kind of a botched announcement in a way where, you know, the press knew the press knew what was going on, but they haven't come to any terms to, you know, agreement to a contract. So Eric gets there. He goes up, talk to, uh, to father Joyce and they don't come to an agreement. Uh, and you know, it's never really been stated like why, or, you know, 
or what happened, but they never really came to an agreement. So <laughs> he just leaves. Uh, Eric leaves. So uh, it says here, when Eric got here, Moose says, he was so overwhelmed by everything that he had to get away. After he left the Morris Inn, I got in my car and I followed him. When I caught up with him, I said, look, you belong here and you're going to be all right. He was so concerned because he wasn't a Catholic. I said, Rockney wasn't a Catholic. Don't worry about it. He wanted to come here so badly, but he was frightened. After this happened at the Morris Inn, I later took him to a Notre Dame basketball game. and We went out the court at halftime and I introduced him to the crowd. All the students stood up and began cheering, era, era, we want era. He was so happy that he was on a cloud. Uh, says, I was always straight with him. I told him when he started the job, you're going to have trouble here because some people hate Notre Dame. You know it, and I know it, and you're going to have to live with it. And that, I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that's Notre Dame. That is, you know, 50 years later, that, this is what's going on. Uh, still to today, people hate Notre Dame. People love Notre Dame. And you're going to have problems with both people that love and hate Notre Dame. It's just the, it's the business of being the head coach, uh, you know, at that school. Um, but, you know, eventually they, they, got, they got their man. They got Era. Um, and, you know, there, there was, began kind of a, of a love affair between the student body and Era. And, you know, he was a, he was a younger guy, you know, back then. And, you know, the, the book goes on through about, you know, about his dark hair and his dark eyes. And he just had uh, such, you know, an intensity about him, such a, a seriousness about it. And, and the book will, will go on, you know, and kind of kind of compare him a lot to to Leahy um, in, in terms of, you know, his sheer will, sheer, you know, intensity and determination. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, I, I say love affair, and I think that's even like a light term to use when, when, when talking about, um, you know, how it was, uh, let's see here. So when Mook talk <clears throat> and it, it was, a, it was a feeling that wasn't just a felt by the student body. It was a feeling that Moose was having as well. Uh, and it says here, when Moose talks about Parsegian, his tone is different from when discussing any other Irish coach, he speaks of Rockney as a son speaks of a father, and he speaks of Leahy as a man, talks about a friend. By the time Persegian came to Notre Dame, Moose was in his 50s, and he regarded Era more as a father regards a son. You know, so, you know, he lo- Moose looked at Rock as a dad, Leahy as a buddy, and he looked at Era as a son. Now, as a... as someone who has a father, has uh, two very close uh, and good best friends and, and many other friends and who also has two sons. I can tell you the what I talk about the most, what makes me emotional the most are my sons. As I, I mean, I just think that's, that's normal. So if you're looking at a man and, and as a, you know, you know, you look as a father figure, but you're looking at someone as a son figure, basically, there is a lot of emotion that you're investing into that person. There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of anxiety uh, because you want them to do well. Uh, and that's, you know, how Moose felt, you know, about Arrow. Um, and again, it goes on here. <laughs> it talks about, uh, I like I like what it says, you know, Moose called him Parmesan. Uh, you know, it, it talks about these, these dynasties. You know, it, it was time to bring it back. These are like decade long things and the book, you know, discusses, you know, like the NFL Packers of the sixties, Steelers of the seventies, Niners of the eighties, uh, you know, and then, you know, he's talked about how football, college football dynasties are more tied, not necessarily to decades, but to coaches, um, you know, with, you know, Bear Bryant and Bama Paterno with Penn state, um, Daryl Royal in Texas, uh, you know, Notre Dame and Rockney, Notre Dame and Leahy. I mean, but it is with Notre Dame, it's by the time it gets to era, you got these two solid ones already in the books that, that you're going to have to live up to. You know, imagine the pressure later, you know, obviously for Holtz, you know, when you got, you know, Holt, you know, 
Leahy, Rockney, Era, plus Divine snuck a, you know, got a championship in. Uh, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, and now Brian Kelly trying to trying to live up to that pressure with all those other guys behind him. That's it's it's the decker. It's just getting more and more stacked. Um, and so it goes on here. Aaron and Leahy were similar in many ways. Moose says they were very sensitive people, and when they lost, they couldn't sleep. They sat up all night and thought about it. One time after we lost the game to Louisiana State University, Aaron was so upset he was wandering around the hotel. I found him in a restaurant eating spaghetti at 6 a.m., and I sat down at his table. What's the matter, I said. We lost, he told me. He was just looking at the wall, looking through it. It was something to see his eyes. You never forget him, I said. Look, we've lost before. Leahy lost a couple times. We'll come back from this. Yeah, sure, he said. He didn't want to hear it. They're all like that. They hate losing. So that I, that's how, you know, it doesn't say it in the book here, but you got to think that's how Moose knew. Moose knew he got him. You know, when, when you start comparing the guy to the great ones that you've been around and you start seeing the same characteristics come out of them, you start to get the feeling that that you know greatness is right there. So, you know, it's a it's it was a <laughs> it was a hell of a hire, a necessary one. <laughs> I mean, you, get, you know, if you can't beat them, steal them. Uh, that's basically what uh, what happened. Uh, let's see here. So, the book goes into. Uh, Oh, how do we want to get this? I I I, I had this highlighted because I, I I thought this was funny because we had talked about, um, you know, a Notre Dame tied Michigan the the angry letters to Blue and Gold Illustrated, and I just I just kept chuckling thinking about how how not different things are. I mean, yeah, they're letters and not emails or or message board posts, but it's the same thing. Fans get pissed and they're ready to vent. Uh, so it's a letter writing campaign going in. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're following along in the, the 92 season here. And the uh, book, you know, weaves in, in and out of uh, talking about the coaches in the 92 season. So it says, if the tie against Michigan had brought forth an outcry from some Irish fans locally and around the nation, the Stanford debacle set loose an even greater response more people wrote the Blue and Gold Illustrated praising Bill Walsh, asking for Holtz's head, and declaring that the Irish defense had become non-existent. In the world of college football, one scribe said, ND now stood for no defense. That is not anything different than what goes on today. If any, if Notre Dame, any time Brian Kelly has lost, the the head coach of the other team is like, People want him. I mean, it's like, or not even Kelly. I remember, you know, you remember. I remember when uh, when UConn beat beat Notre Dame in two thousand nine, and with the coaching search, there was this giant group of people that were fucking ride or die for Randy Etzel. Thank God we didn't hire Randy Etzel. Uh, you know, it, it, but it's stuff like that. Um, you know, not to say that Bill Walsh couldn't have done well at Notre Dame, but these are people called Lou Holtz, but it's these same people that did this, call for Holtz's head, that are calling for Kelly's head now. It, it, it's, it's a never-ending cycle of nothing is ever good enough. Um, it, it, it just it makes me laugh, it, it makes me roll my eyes, and it makes me think that, you know, we're not all that different, you know, between the eras. And there's so much... There's so many similarities about how things um, how things roll, uh, but after that, so after you know and this, so you know that was after that big you know 33, uh, 16 loss to Stanford. Um, I think Stanford was ranked 18th at the time. Their name was ranked six. Um, you know they had, they started the season out ranked number three, but um, uh, that tie to Michigan dropped them down a little bit. They had uh, rattled off a couple of of uh, pretty hefty wins against Michigan state and Purdue. Um, but then that Stanford game, I think they were up 16, nothing and Stanford just went buck wild. So, 
<laughs> you know, Holtz has got he's he's under some he's under a lot of pressure here. Uh, you know, remember too, this is this is Lou Holtz with a national title in hand in '92. This is Lou Holtz with a national title plus a national title that was stolen from him in '89. Probably. I mean, we're not we won't get too deep in the woods on that, but. If you're not going to give it to him in 93, you got to give it to him in 89, right? It's one or the other. I mean, they were co-national champions in 89 and 93, so I count them as just national. I, I count all codes as, as full on. You know, they're champions. But, you know, but this is a guy who brought her name back to greatness. You know, got through the Faust era, and now here's Holtz winning a national title in his third year like all the great ones do. Uh, it, but they're, they're ready to get him out of there. It, it's insane to me, but that's what happened. So <laughs> it, it was time for some changes, and this is the, this chapter was uh, was extremely interesting to me because you got to remember in '92 I was uh, 14 years old, uh, and what Notre Dame's traditions day in and or, you know, week in and week out throughout the football season weren't really widely known to me at the time. Um, and you know what? I had not been up there for a game yet. Uh, this was, you know, I mean, I've seen him a bunch on television and, and all that, but it, you know, I have no, there's no Notre Dame alums in my family. So just getting to know what the traditions were over time, you know, it happened more in my, um, post-teen years more than anything else. <clears throat> but the reason I say that is because Holtz is ready to change a bunch of stuff from that loss. Like, that rattled him. Like, things aren't working. We got to do something different. And you know, Notre Dame still had a lot to play for. And, you know, and you think, all right, in the Holtz era, too, like, if you're not playing for a national title, what is that season? Uh, but he, you know, Holtz talked about, you know, the caliber of the opponents that they were going to pl- play. They still had BYU, B- uh, Boston College, Penn State, and USC. And those, these were all teams that they were, that were going to be ranked in the AP top 25 and they played them. Uh, and they were. Uh, so, you know, he made that important point to his team. Like, look, this ain't over. We still have a lot to prove. Um, and as it turned out that season, Notre Dame had played more ranked opponents than any team any other team in the country. You know, this was a 10-1-1 team. This was a, a team that Holtz had, had exclaimed was one of the best ever, if, and he had thought it was better than the 88 team even. Uh, but that that just heartbreaking tie against Michigan where you, you kind of, where everyone was ready to, to put Holtz out on a rail because, you know, because they thought he didn't try to win it. He was going for the tie, much like Era in 66. And then the Stanford game, which just came out at 33-16, that's just like what an absolute implosion. But, you know, we not get ahead of ourselves, but you know, Notre Dame does go on to win every single game after that, including a, a Cotton Bowl. So let's uh, – but I want to I talk about these changes. And uh, I think I'm, I'm just going to read this. I'm just going to read all of this. Um. All right, so, so th- th- this is a long list, and this, a lot of this stuff is stuff that Notre Dame does now. Some of it's stuff that Notre Dame has changed again, but we're going to get through this. It says, in the future, Holtz went on. Their routine before games would be different and less distracting. Following the Friday night pep rallies, the team would hold its relaxation sessions not in the new and comfortable Loftus Center, <laughs> which had large meeting rooms and an indoor practice facility, but in a smaller, older space at the Joyce Athletic and Convocation Center, a space that, as Monahan said, has a musty smell and a nostalgic feel. Now, before I go on, think of the time difference we got going on here. You know, we just got out of Loftus and into the new, uh, into the new indoor thing. And at the time, the Loftus was new, shiny. <laughs> it's just it's a that's a big time difference. Um, all right, so let's keep going here. I mean, this is there's a lot here, but it's important because after Notre Dame lost to Stanford, 
Holtz just went through and like did a clean house thing in the way that he did things. And you got to know a guy that won a national championship and a guy that's probably pretty set in his ways at a university that's very set in their ways. He, he knew that something had to happen after, after a, just a terrible loss. I mean, it was just an awful loss. So it says, before the Stanford loss, Holtz had not traveled with the team on Friday evenings to a motel outside South Bend in Plymouth, Indiana, where the players slept before home games so they could escape the noise and excitement on the campus. From now on, he would go with them and visit each uh, of the 29 motel rooms holding the 58 players who had the best chance of seeing action the following day. 25 to 30 other young men suited up for home games but didn't make the trip to Plymouth. Before going to bed, Holtz would talk to every one of the 58 individuals, asking them questions about how they were feeling and telling them what to expect in the game. If his duties at Notre Dame already included making a vast number of speeches and giving countless inspirational talks, that number had suddenly shot up. Coach Holtz just felt, said Monahan, that he should be the last person to speak with the guys before they went to sleep. On Saturday mornings, the team would no longer attend Mass in Keenan Hall, but moved the service over to Sacred Heart Basilica, the old, tall, magnificent church in the middle of the campus. After the Mass, which was conducted by Father James Real, really? Or, I mean, R-I-E-H-L-E, I don't know, Ryle? I'll say Ryle. Sorry. <laughs> the athletic department chaplain the players would not disperse and go back to the dorms as in the past, breaking up the rhythm and the group feeling generated throughout the morning, but walk straight to the university dining hall and eat the pregame meal. Pasta, pancakes, and ham, always the same menu, always a super load of carbohydrates. After consuming all they wanted, the young men would walk across campus in the stadium as a unit. Coach, Holt deci- Coach Holtz decided that we'd been losing concentration on Saturday morning by not doing everything together. The players really like going places in droves. It gives them a certain feeling, a powerful feeling, and they love the new routine. In the past, all 80 players had suited up for the game at the same time in the stadium locker room. Now Holtz wanted only the 58 regulars in the dressing room on Saturday morning. The rest were assigned to a private locker room at another location. This left the main locker room less cramped and less hectic, so everyone felt there was more time to get dressed, relax, listen to music, or to read one of the game day programs the assistants handed out. Now, not everything would be different. Holtz had the same, you know, pre, you know, pregame stuff. He would send them out for pregame drills at exact times, 12, 12.08, 12.15, call them back in the locker room and give their final instructions for each kickoff. But that's a lot. He, he, he changed so much stuff from after one loss. One loss said, boom. Uh, this was like, a, I don't know. Change moves at very slow increments at a place like Notre Dame. Very slow. I mean, they, they happen over a long period of time. And after one loss, he had changed. I mean, that's that's a big one. I mean, the player walk, that they're <laughs> making that. Uh, this is what, you know, this is our game day traditions now. So, uh, and I, I know people, you're going to love this. Uh, Holtz promised that from now on, his team was going to pass the ball less and run the ball more. And in practice, the first-team defense would regularly take on the first-team offense so that both units would be sharper. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Just RTDB, baby. Run the damn ball. Uh, and, you know, especially in 92, uh, no one was used to the spread attacks and what's going on now. And I, I think we, we bat less of an eyelash, unless you're the older from the older crowd. But this is the type of mentality. It's like, nope, ground and pound, baby, ground and pound. And for Notre Dame, especially at that time, their lines, their running backs, and what they did, it just made perfect sense to do what they did. Um, and, you know, and another thing here, it says, in a move invoking one of Rockney's old strategies, Holtz also promised one other thing. His second-team offense was going to play in the games more than in the past just to shake things up. So not just like coming in and, uh, you know, you know, getting, getting some snaps in for the game or, or whatnot. We're talking about some heavy, serious time. Uh, so all that, all these big changes uh, going on and, <laughs> you know, 
Uh, you you kind of got to love it. All right, so we get through the, we get through that, and now it, it goes back to Moose, and uh, <laughs> it talks about one of the kind of a funny character, uh, Colonel Stevens, who was Moose's, um, uh, you know, right hand man. His basically like his doorman. In a, in a way, and I don't mean like open up the door for him, although he might have, uh, but kind of the guy that, to run interference. Um, and when you, <laughs> I I crack up in the book. There's a you know great uh, there's some great picks in here in the book. Uh, you know, in the middle of it, uh, but one and Jack Stevens is certainly someone that I wasn't hugely familiar with, especially when I first read this book um, at age 15, and even now I don't hear a whole lot about him. But uh, yeah, I look at him, and I guess you know Regis kind of <laughs> he kind of looks like Regis. But in my mind, as I'm reading this book, I'm picturing him more like David Spade, uh, kind of like the that prick David Spade would play, um, because that's kind of what he had to be. Moose was such a nice, gracious person. Uh, you have all these people, you know, you know, with their hands out. Uh, and, and Jack was was the guy the, to make sure Moose wasn't giving away the the farm, uh, and I don't know. So this this there's a giant section about uh, about the Colonel in there. Um, let's see here. It says, "Yeah, people were always coming in and wanted Ed to increase their budget." And the Colonel said, or the Colonel said, looking at his companion in the last quarter century, giving and this. Well, I'll start that over in a second. This book is is ridiculously poorly written. <laughs> it was one of my favorite books when I was young, but there is just there's typo. It's, I mean, I guess it's fit for someone like me who's all over the map as it is. But it, it just kind of goes back and forth. I'm never sure who's talking or who's, uh, you know, is it a couple? And this is like kind of a couple guys in the room. It was Moose and and the Colonel in the room and the you know with the author. Um, it says, people were always coming in and wanting Ed to increase their budget, the colonel said, looking at his companion of the last quarter century with an express, expression that combined pride and protectiveness. Give me this. Give me that. Somebody always wanted something. You know how people are. I'd tell them that Moose was in a very, very bad mood, and if they went to those office, they were going to catch holy hell. Moose's shoulders bobbed in his chair. He was laughing again. That got rid of most of them, colonel said. He never liked to get mad at people, but that didn't bother me at all. I had to keep those bastards away from his door. I mean, I just, I, I'm telling you, the, the, the whole David Spade thing with the Colonel. If you want to do a, a movie about Moose, go go cast David Spade as as Colonel Stevens. Um, oh, man. And Stevens has, I mean, he's got a lot to say, though, too. A lot of important stuff in here. It talks about, it says, I'll tell you something about Era, Stevens said. The one guy who helped Ed the most through thick and thin was Era Parsegian. He was like a son to him. When Ed was drinking and had some tough, tough days, and he glanced at Moose and said, hey, maybe you don't want to talk about that? Moose is like, that's all right. I do want to talk about it. I talk about all the AA meetings all over the country, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago. He said, I, I'm not ashamed of it. Era helped me, and the colonel helped me. I had a drinking problem, but I don't anymore. AA helped you immeasurably, Stephen said. You've been stone cold sober for what? 15, 20 years? <laughs> like, sobriety is like measured in days. Even years later, it's like days. And Colonel's like, what, 15, 20 years? Uh, it's just only funny to me. I don't know. And you've helped other people with their drinking. Back in the old days, the 50s and 60s, it was different. Almost, it was almost impossible not to drink. Moose had friends everywhere, every city we played in. They show up before the game with a bottle of scotch in one hand, a bottle of bourbon in the other, and the mix to go with it. They'd say, I want to see Moose. Everybody wanted to see Moose. They'd corner him and start pouring booze, and it was hard to say no. I tried to fight them off, but they all wanted a party. I mean, Moose was the guy. He, he's the guy that came in. Everyone's like, I'm gonna, I want to drink with this guy. I, I'm going to go... Shake his hand, and we talked about that early on. I mean, people just wanted to; they wanted a moose story. That's that's the kind of that, that's the kind of pull he had. And you know, when his his wife had gotten into a very bad car accident, and you know was left um, 
paralyzed, but she needed a lot of care. This is when Moose's drinking turned in from, you know, the normal, like, you know, 40s, 50s type of drinks. And it evolved, you know, rapidly into hardcore alcoholism uh, because of having to deal with all that, um, you know, with the problems with his wife. Uh, says, uh, Ed and I, Colonel's still talking here. Ed and I used to room together on the road. He snores real loud. One night he was over there making a lot of noise and I couldn't get to sleep. I walked over and bent down and kissed him on the cheek. He woke up and it scared him so much that he stayed, <laughs> that he stayed up all night watching me. I got a good night's rest. <laughs> I mean, Colonel Stevens has got a, he's got some balls on him, man. I don't know if I could, uh, kiss a guy like who's on the cheek while he's sleeping and think how you weren't going to get decked. Uh, so that, <laughs> uh, that, that was an interesting thing, but it just, it kind of goes on there. Um, man, we'll see here. It says, okay. Yeah. But it says moose chewed on a cigar. I started drinking heavily after my wife's car accident. That was in the late sixties. It was terrible. I just fell apart. She was in the hospital for a long time and then in a nursing home. I felt sorry for myself and I was hitting the bottle every day. I'd go to the nursing home with a bottle of scotch and sit there by myself and drink it. But I whipped it. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a, just, it was another battle for Moose. A man who had, had fought his way out of, you know, being poor and ethnic in Chicago and then getting another name and, and fighting to be the best on the best team. And then, you know, out there, I mean, going to war for our country. And then, you know, he's used to fighting battles. He's also used to winning them. So he knows how to do it. He, he knows the mental toughness that it takes to do all this stuff. And, man, I mean, look, alcohol, alcoholism is a disease. And it is not, you know, it, it's, it's not all about willpower. It's not, it's, it's different. It brains are different. And so, but with Moose, it was just like, it was another battle. And you kind of get that sense when he says, you know, I, but I whipped it. You get that sense that this was one more battle in Moose's life that he was able to conquer. You know, he, he was the badass and he conquered it and he did it. And he did. And look, guys like era Colonel, these were guys that had his back fully uh, and they helped him through it. And he acknowledged that all the way through. I think th- and this is another p- great part about the Moose Krause story is how human he was. This big legendary figure. And But there's just uh, all these human moments with Moose. And, you know, s- struggling with something is there's nothing more human than that. It's something that we can all relate to. And if it's, if it's not alcoholism, maybe it's in a gambling addiction. Maybe it's a, you know, OCD, what, you know, whatever it is, everyone has a struggle in their life or, you know, a battle to conquer. And you can relate to that with moose. You, you can, you know, I always get upset about, you know, there's things that there's nothing you can do about. Right. And, you know, some of them are just like wait and see things. And it frustrates me to no end. Like I just, I want to like grab the problem and just beat the shit out of it. Like I want to get into a street brawl, uh, with the problem just to know that I fought it with everything I had. And that's just not how things are. But, you know, knowing that I'm not the only one that's like that. And people, you know, people are fighting for battles all the time. You can relate when someone tells you their their story, their you know call it testimony or whatever it is, their story of struggle. There's always something that you can. No one has an easy life. Even people that you think have a have an easy breezy life, they all have their own struggles, their own personal inner demons. And this is something that you can relate to with, with Moose. And, and I love the way. I just kind of I do like the way that it's laced in here. It's not overkill. It's not. It doesn't make it part of the grander story. It's another part of Moose. It's another part of who he is. Um, so there's I, I won't read this this uh, interaction, uh, you know, all the way through because uh, it's, it's a quit. But again, the, at the end of the Colonel's out. Of, <laughs> Colonel leaves. 
so the, the door, the door, the gateway is open, and and there's a student that comes in and talks about how he just wanted to see him. Talk talked about you know, hey, my grandfather knew you. Who's your grandfather? He tells me, hey, I remember him. He you know he was going to be a priest, but he discovered they were girl. Like they knew who he was. Tell him to get to South Bend to a game. You know, just Moose had this way to. Um, you know, to relate to everybody. Um, let's see here. We're, we're, we're good 48 <laughs> minutes in on this. I pro- So we're, we're going to leave it there, um, and I will get to the next two chapters very soon. Uh, I, will, I will get to that th- this next week. Uh, I, I was going to get it into... Uh, not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I did not want to roll these past an hour, so... Um, I didn't want these to be more than a half hour, but shit, you get me talking even by myself. I'm just going to keep rolling. Uh, but so we'll get into chapters 12 and 13 uh, the next time around or next time around. Look for that, you know, later, later next week, like a Friday night session. Hell, I don't know. Ah, so I hope you guys are enjoying this. Um, this is, uh, I mean, this, this for me, this is fun. This is, like I said, this is a book that, I read a, a bunch of times as a kid. First time I, I read it in I don't know how many years since I was probably 18. Uh, so I'm having a good time with it. Um, I, I hope I hope I'm doing this right. I, don't, I, I have no idea. Uh, I know Brendan, uh, my oh, one of my OFD podcast partners, and and uh, one of the great contributors we have over at One Foot Down. Uh, he loves my, uh, my Rockty impersonation. Uh, Leahy is, is, is less to be desired. I don't have an era one. I really don't. I, I was actually going to work on that today, but there's just, it's, it's so subtle. I, I, and I'm not that subtle. Uh, I think I could get his voice inflection. Correct. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Hell, I'm not even sure why I'm telling you guys that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, here we are. So thank you for joining us. Um, it's going to be, a, if you know, all these, you know, whether it's off the rails or the book cast or the OFT podcast, so it's all comes up on the, on the OFT podcast thing. It's going to be a busy week. We're going to, we're going to have a lot of stuff for you. Um, we got a really good one, uh, that we're going to be recording on, uh, Sunday night. Uh, and, and there's going to be a couple more things for you this week. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, this is great. This is great yard stuff, man. I, I was out in the yard all day today from like 8.30 until like 6.30 working on stuff. I, it's ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, podcasts are a great way. Uh, maybe I should go back to music sometimes. I don't know. But hopefully you guys are enjoying this and using this uh, to help you get through the quarantine. I know it's not an easy thing, but uh, I've rambled on long enough. We'll get some of this some more. Thanks for listening. Go Irish.